it's really about solidarity and organizing. We don't think of ourselves as just slapping a, a logo on a t-shirt or on a coffee mug or on a pen. We think, what can we do to help the unions that we serve and support? You had an attendance policy you put on the table that basically took away our members' ability to have any time off, maybe one day a month, compared to the five or six that they used to get. As a human being, their goals, the goals and the desires of what I heard in rural Western Pennsylvania matches up almost line to line of what I heard in urban Baltimore. This need for employment, this challenges with health care, indicative of a, a broader challenge with cost of living. And the fact that we've become so divided and so angry at each other, when at, at the root, so much of what we want out of life is the same. I don't know when I first noticed that telling a story with a song is a very powerful medium of communication that can really have a huge impact on people. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On today's show, listen in as Grit Nation discusses shortcomings in the global garment industry with the CEO of Union Shop, Image Point, and finds out just what it takes to run a company that can truly change people's lives. Then, Talking Smart is back with their most popular episode yet, as Smart TD President Jeremy Ferguson talks about a subject that's foremost on the minds of many members. Last month, BNSF arbitrarily changed its attendance policy and took advantage of a pro-management judge to force a draconian attendance policy on the very members who have kept the company operational through the pandemic and who earned BNSF record profits in 2021. Last year, 1,500 steelworkers in Western Pennsylvania went out on strike for four long months. Filmmaker Samuel George embedded himself and his camera in the strike, and he talks about the resulting film, Local 1196, A Steelworker's Strike, on the Labor Goes to the Movies podcast. And on Workweek Radio, Labor Troubadour and internationalist David Rovix talks about his life and work as a musician in the international struggle for justice. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on today's selection of highlights from the nearly 150 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network. If you like what you hear, and we hope you do, you'll find links to the entire programs in our show notes, and of course, you can find all 150 shows on our website at laborradionetwork.org. Here's the show. I'm Joe Cadwell, the writer, producer, and host of the show. And in this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Josh Rule from Image Point and Dignity Apparel, both based in Waterloo, Iowa. And now on to the show. Josh Rule, welcome to Grit Nation. Thank you, Joe. Thrilled to be with you today. Thanks for having me on. 
Yeah, thank you so much, Josh, for taking your time to be on the show to talk to us about image point printers. And we're going to get into the Garmin end of this, I'm sure, because I really am excited to hear that you're getting into that market as well and not just putting the the logos uh, on the items, but actually creating the items in which the logos go on. But before we do, speaking of logos, in your opinion, Josh, what makes, why, why is branding so important? What defines a good logo? Why are, are people clamoring to get their names on shirts? What's that all about? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Joe. And I would frame it from the perspective of, could be a Carpenters Local, we've served about 3,000 active locals, regional councils, district councils, or unions at the international level. If I think about what they're thinking about when they order from us, it's really about solidarity and organizing. And then those are the two words we talk a lot about. We don't think of ourselves as just slapping a, a logo on a t-shirt or on a coffee mug or on a pen. We think, what can we do to help the unions that we serve and support truly accomplish their goals? And ultimately, that's going to be solidarity and organizing. So if you have people who have a custom branded, visually high impact, really well done design uh, that helps define them, We've done some really cool stuff for Carpenters Locals across the country. I can think of some really uh, cool recent IBW designs that we've done in the Pacific Northwest or in California, where they're working with our graphic designers to say, what really represents us? What are those things that make us feel unique as a group and that the people, the members of the union are really going to resonate with? If you can do that and you can create a stronger sense of solidarity or affinity within, within the group... Man, that's something that people want to be a part of. We're all looking for community. We're all looking for something to be people surrounding ourselves that share the kinds of values that we have. And then that emanates out and makes it easier for unions to then go out into the community and to attract new membership and really to grow. And, and again, that lines up with our mission. If they can grow, again, like you said, it's not just creating jobs, it's creating good jobs. So we want to do that ourselves. But then how can we play that? Even if it's a small role, how can we play a small role in helping unions to, to then organize and gain new members over time? And that's right in the center of uh, what we want to do with our mission. Nice. And full disclosure for anyone who's listening right now, I uh, was put in contact with ImagePoint by one of the local carpenters unions here in, in Oregon. I was looking to to do a, a branding of the podcast, the Grit Nation podcast with the uh, with one of our carpenters locals. And they said, hey, you need to reach out to ImagePoint. And I tell you, the, uh, the experience I had there from the first call was customer service seemed like it was job one. The person I talked to was really easy to work with. They took my concept of what I wanted to see on the front and back of the shirt, and they made it come to life. The process, you had mentioned you have graphic designers or creative designers. How do they go about, do you, do you think, you know, with their inspiration. And it's tough to think in, inside the mind of an artist like that. But what do you think is, is important? What sticks out when they go to say, hey, we want to find a brand particular to this local or enterprise? Yes. Yeah, so usually it's it's a sales rep or the account executive that's going to be speaking directly with the, the business agent at the union to try to understand what, what, tra what trades do you represent? And even what are some of the things that make your local unique? And some of those can be geographic, I think is some, some that we've done recently for California along the coast. And they've got that California vibe, that California feel in terms of colors, Ray-Ban sunglasses or Wayfair sunglasses or different things they're trying to integrate in uh, that feel local or regional. We've done some interesting union designs in the Pacific Northwest with Bigfoot integrated in. Sure. <laughs> where they're looking for that Sasquatch out in the Redwood Forest up there. Always a fan and, favorite here. 
Yeah, exactly. So it's usually honing in on what's the trade, what's the thing that's specific and unique to this area. Or sometimes it's an inside joke. We don't even, they're telling us to design something. We'll do it. We don't really know what it means, but it means a lot to them. And really the, our sales team who are interacting very closely with the business agents or with the ordering party at the union to figure out what makes you guys unique and then get that to our graphic artists. And, and goodness, Joe, that the amount of talent they have, I could never touch it. And so we've got graphic artists who have been with us for 10, 15, 20 years and, and who just know how to very quickly put something together and put it in front of people that's going to uh, really, really hit it the, what they're getting at. Well, thank you again, Josh Rule, for taking your time to be on the show. You have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Thank you, Joe. This is Paul Pimentel, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Ben Nagy from Smart TD Communications and Michael Blaine from Smart Communications, who's producing this episode. As we have done for the past year, we are recording remotely due to the pandemic. Welcome to the 19th episode of Talking Smart. We sit down with Smart TD President Jeremy Ferguson to talk about a subject that's at the top of everybody's mind. In February 2022, the NSF changed its attendance policy without any notice, and they took advantage of a management-friendly court down in Texas to force the high-vis attendance policy on the very members who have been keeping the company operational through the recent pandemic and the same people who got them their record profits in 2021. President Ferguson, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you, Paul. Pleasure to be here, brother. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences so far being president? You've had like a pandemic and other things to deal with. Well, as Paul had said, record profits for 2021. All the carriers recorded record profits. And our members have stood on the front lines through the pandemic, kept the freight moving, kept the passengers moving, kept the buses moving. And now it's their turn. And I think they need to be rewarded properly, not to mention where the economy is headed, where the inflation is going, and everything else that affects our members from day to day. Now, it was a real slap in the face when you had an attendance policy get put on the table that basically took away our members' ability to have any time off, maybe one day a month, compared to the five or six that they used to get. To quote the judge in Texas, that is pretty hard. So can we get uh, into a, a little bit more about the policy and uh, how our union has responded to it thus far? Yes. Obviously, uh, our response right away was that to us, this was considered a major dispute. And we immediately talked with the BLE, the Brotherhood Locomotive Engineers, because they sit on the other side of the cab with us. And we wanted to make sure we were in lockstep with them so we didn't go down an opposing path, if you will. So we took that very seriously, Dennis Pierce and myself, and quickly moved to take a strike vote because we both agreed that this was going to be a major. We've seen a lot of attendance policies over the years, including changes on the Union Pacific about two years ago. But this one had some tentacles that were far reaching. And it was not only a coincidence, in our opinion, but it was done on purpose to make changes to issues that we were talking about in contract negotiations. So to us, that was a violation of the status quo. And we wanted to challenge that as a major dispute. And that major, in the terms that I'm using, is a legal definition under the Railway Labor Act of what kind of dispute it is. And it, when it was ruled a minor, or if I say it, it is a minor, that doesn't mean it, it is not a major issue to this union or to the members, that it is only a legal definition of such. What would the, what would the court be looking at? Well, the court was looking at uh, whether this was a contractual interpretation 
or this was a, a unilateral change. This particular judge, was this judge like a neutral judge? Was he, has he ever had any experience in the rail industry or the transportation industry before and understood these kinds of- I don't know. I won't say he's neutral. I wouldn't say this court is neutral in the, in the Northern District of Texas there, Fort Worth. We have been in his courthouse. I have been in his courthouse personally before. This was my second time with him. The first time for me was with our crew consists when the carriers took us to that court, trying to say that the, the interpretation of our crew consists moratoriums was a minor dispute because we obviously were taking the position that that was a major dispute. And Judge Pittman was the judge. He did make it clear he got some things and some things wrong on the crew consists I'm talking about. And what I'm getting at is he did agree with us that crew consists agreements have to be negotiated at the local level not at the national agreement level like the carriers were attempting to do. They wanted it all bundled into one easy negotiating session. So Pittman agreed with us there. And then he went on to say, yeah, it's a minor dispute, but you got to go negotiate. He got that wrong. So we went to the Fifth Circuit, challenged that, got that overturned. Now, what was the ultimate result? We still had to go back to an arbitrator twice because first we had to go to a procedural arbitration and determine how that was going to be answered procedurally. Then we had to go arbitrate on the merits and we had to get a merits uh, neutral that was second or different than the first procedural arbitrator that we had. Long story short, no matter what we do in the courts, when, even when we get the right to strike, more than likely we're going to be either in front of an arbitrator or in front of a panel of arbitrators as a presidential emergency board under the Railway Labor Act. What sort of options do we have right now regarding the high-vis case? Options on the high-vis case, we have basically two, and that's it. The first one being we can appeal Judge Pittman's decision, go on to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and see what they have to say. That could take well over a year. That would be a delay while our members are still living with high vis and more than likely they're going to be disciplined due to high vis and some will be dismissed. Some will have a number of days off, a number of hearings, whatever the case may be. The other choice we have is to start moving immediately to arbitration and take it to what the Railway Labor Act and Congress back in 1928 and 1934 gave us as Supreme Court, the National Railroad Adjustment Board or a public law board. Okay, so we can go to an arbitrator and we can start making our arguments. Instead of worrying about a discipline appeal, we can get right on into arbitration and have a dispute over any conflicts that this high-vis has with our agreement. And that's the reason we were going to go on strike, because we felt they were unilaterally changing that. So we can pose those disputes to that arbitrator, to that neutral, and go on his authority and his rulings and be governed, he or she, excuse me, and be governed accordingly. President Sellers, President Ferguson, thank you for being here and taking the time to be with us today. Thank you once again for having me. Take care. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you, Ben. We're going to wake up one day and there won't be a union. There won't be anybody to protect our rights as workers. You have them, you have us. When enough of us has sat back and said, enough, that's enough, then the machines will stop. That's a clip from Local 1196, a steelworkers strike. A brand new film by our guest today, Sam George. Last year, 1,500 steelworkers in western Pennsylvania went out on strike for four long months. 
If you don't remember hearing about the strike, don't worry, Elise and I hadn't either. It was against a company named ATI, Allegheny Technologies Incorporated, and even though the strike involved 1,500 steelworkers at nine different locations, it never really made the radar on the national labor scene in a year that saw a huge increase in both strikes and union organizing. So we're very fortunate that Sam George decided to embed himself and his camera in the strike by Local 1196. Our feeling was we had done two stories about kind of urban America, very different topics, but set in urban America. And then you had this incredibly contentious election. And then you had the January 6th disaster. And the feeling was what in the world is pushing and motivating these feelings from a more rural America. It was this sort of urban rural divide that, that you could get to this point where so many people would be willing to undermine American democracy that they felt that this was the this, this step or, or that we would somehow not respect the results of an election. We wanted to get out and talk to people in these areas. But I came across this article in like a small regional Western Pennsylvania newspaper that said negotiations for a new contract with the steel workers at this mill were falling apart and they were, it was possible that they were going to strike. And the, the newspaper had a picture and the picture showed this massive blue steel mill just swamping over this little, what you would picture in a storybook of 1950s kind of American town. And there was something about that picture that, that made me want to know more. And so I just, I just start working backwards. Who do I get in touch with? The newspaper qu quoted a guy named Todd Barbio, who said was the union president. So I called the union and asked for Todd Barbio. And they said, he's in a meeting, but here's his cell phone number. Let's call his cell phone number, leave a message. That's what I do all the time. Nobody calls me back. In a documentary kind of setting, you say, well, how do you get so close to these people? You have to understand that it's the 10% that engage and, and you just have to get used to a lot of people. And that's totally their right. I don't take offense to it at all. A lot of people would prefer not to, and that's fine. But Todd called me back and just a wonderful person. Again, there's that trust. He doesn't really know who I am and what I want to do, but he said, come on down and you can film. And I wasn't supposed to begin filming this documentary for another three weeks, but he was like, look, if we strike, it's going to be in two days. So you wouldn't want to get down here, up there. So I, without really knowing what to expect, I just got in a car and drove. Made that first of what turned out to be many trips to Western Pennsylvania. And we had no idea what was going to happen. I mean, there was a lot of rumors that contract was going to get resolved before the strike even occurred. There may have been no strike. And then there were rumors that it was going to get solved in the first 48 hours. And then what you maybe have is a short story within a bigger documentary about this labor stoppage. But a couple things happened. First of all, the labor dispute or the strike dragged out for a full four months. But then second of all, and most importantly, like the guys there were just wonderful with me and they really brought me in and opened up and they gave me access that frankly is extremely rare. You're not supposed to be able to film union meetings, but they let me film stuff. And I, I think it's because they wanted to share their story and spending time on the picket lines, but then at the union hall and then ultimately getting to go into their home. That's kind of how it came about. Yeah, it was uh, extraordinary, the intimacy with the, the Makali workers and then with the, the steel workers. And, and the contrast, the juxtaposition is just, 
and yeah, well, where they are and how how they move. And this been really, especially with the last election, twenty twenty. We're hearing about the class and union folks and their MAGA hats and yada yada. But I didn't hear them in that way. Or yes. Yes, I, I thank you for saying that. And in a way, that was my goal, I would say. It was a subtext of the film. And that was, I just see us so incredibly divided right now. Incredibly divided. And on both sides, I think there's just so much misunderstanding because I think this, the normal rank and file person from urban or rural is just so often a good person. But maybe their politics stink. And maybe they screw up the vote, maybe. But as a human being, their goals, the goals and the desires of what I heard in rural Western Pennsylvania matches up almost line to line of what I heard in urban Baltimore. This need for employment, this challenges with healthcare, indicative of a, a broader challenge with cost of living. And the fact that we've become so divided and so angry at each other when it, at the root, so much of what we want out of life is the same. And I think that's what I, I wanted to show because it's what I saw. And I, I just wish, I wish we as Americans could realize that there's a lot, especially of the working people that should unite them, right? Like the challenges in Immokalee and the challenges in Western Pennsylvania and the challenges in Baltimore, it's really similar. It's, and, and if we could find a way to come together instead of being divided, we have more in common than I think we realize. Thank yeah. you so much. Sam George, it has absolutely been a pleasure talking to you. And I thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about it. It's really a pleasure to be a part of this conversation. Alrighty, have a good one. Bye bye. Take care. This is Steve Zeltzer with Workweek, and uh, we've played the music many times of uh, renowned uh, labor troubadour David Rovix, who lives in Portland, Oregon. Who's uh, not only has performed in the United States but internationally around the world, and uh, has taken up the causes of and struggles of workers, blacks, Browns, immigrants working people throughout the world and uh, fighting against the United States imperialist interventions and uh, for workers' human rights in the United States. So thanks for joining us on Workweek, David. Thank you, Steve. Glad to be with you. So David, you have worked on many songs about working class struggles, uh, history of working class. How did you get into writing songs and um, being a, basically a troubadour of, of the working class? I guess it was a roundabout process, I suppose, but I mean, not that roundabout, but it was, it definitely um, began uh, with um, folks like Pete Seeger in the mix. So um, although it started with the anti-nuclear movement for me, it, it, it didn't take long before it, it included a lot of other analysis of what's wrong in society. Uh, but in terms of writing songs about labor history and about working class struggles today, it's, uh, I, I just, I don't know, I don't know when I first noticed that telling a story with a song is a very powerful medium of communication that can really have a huge impact on people, both emotionally as well as in terms of popular education, in terms of at least introducing people to a subject, if not necessarily providing them with in-depth detail on, on it. Uh, you know, I, I found that songs are just a great way to do that. And also, I, I mean, I play music for sort of, uh, 
out of the need to play music, and which a lot of musicians are, are doing it for, for mm-hmm. such reasons, but um, the fact that it's also a wonderful medium to be able to tell stories and, and um, do activism is, is, uh, is just a great, I think, you know, because certainly I'd, I'd be playing music anyway, and I'd be wanting to do activism anyway, and the fact that these things kind of work well together <laughs> actually very convenient for me. One of the things that you've done is to talk about the history, the real history, the uncovered history of the American working class. What are some of the songs you've done about history of uh, working people in the United States and internationally? Oh, gosh. Um, Where do you start? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've written a lot of songs about about history, and I have a whole uh, history section on my website, davidrovics.com slash history, which um, is divided into 15 uh, modules. Uh, each of which contains uh, 10 or 15 songs. So, I mean, writing songs about history has kind of been my my specialty for several decades now. And, and at this point, I have now a body of work that includes several hundred songs about about labor history. So I don't know really where to start. But I, I, I did, uh, I mean, I've, I guess I've written songs that cover history that goes way back, including like uh, to... I don't know. History of city of Jerusalem is, I guess, one one song I wrote that that's uh, going back a fair ways, but um, more uh, you know more it's more been recent stuff. But I, I write a lot of stuff about history because the the history is just so important to remember and and such wild stuff. And I find although like for example, I've written a lot of songs about the industrial workers of the world and the period of the one big union in Canada in in the nineteen teens because i I think that that period of union organizing was just a tremendous period in terms of like creativity and and the and the the level of grassroots participation in the labor movement at the time and the the popularity and the vision and the the, the sense of possibility i mean you know that it was a really heady time the nineteen teens um and uh, the so much great songs came out of the period, but there's there there's so much room so there's so much room for writing songs about the period. I find because it's not enough just to sing the songs from the period. They don't they, they I mean by themselves they're great, but they don't capture the the moment quite as as well as you you can do if you if you kind of give a little background that that people wouldn't have needed back then because they were there, you know. We're speaking with David Rovick. And David, you've you've traveled around the world. The idea of internationalism, do you think it's growing now uh, among people around the world? Yeah, I, I think um, I, I think the idea of internationalism has been growing at, with leaps and bounds ever since, um, especially since the advent of the internet. It's helped a lot. But also, of course, um, on the other side of that equation with the social media companies and the algorithms and many you know political parties and many corporate media structures um nationalism is also more popular than it's been in a long time i'd say both internationalism and nationalism are both um having a a, an extreme uh, rise in popularity in a lot of different parts of the world and it's it's very unclear you know where that's all going to go because uh you know these different forms because there also there's a lot of different forms of internationalism and nationalism and that should be that should be mentioned you know and you know as most anybody in 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 many many people in scotland or ireland will tell you um you know there's there doesn't need to be any kind of conflict between nationalism and internationalism you know these things can go along with each other just fine 
It just depends on what kind of nationalism, what kind of internationalism we're talking about. So from your point of view, you would say workers internationalism. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we, that's what we need. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which can go hand in hand with, with certain forms of nationalism when we're talking about, like, especially when we're talking about countries that are trying to uh, throw off the, the, the boots of corporate or colonial or whatever kind of oppressors, you know, that then there's a lot of role for, for um, nationalism because, I mean, we're talking about, you know, governments and governments organized are, are, are organized primarily as nations. And so the nation is, is a very important uh, political structure. And um, it, to the extent that we have like, you know, democratic structures, they're organized, uh, with, you know, in that framework. And what happens within the borders of a nation is very, very important. And um, as one who travels between, across national borders on a very regular basis, I can tell you that what happens in a given nation is going to be tended it will tend to be very different than what happens in any other nation because different nations have their own political structures media structures histories and you know even when you just go from denmark to sweden things change a lot and you know these are different societies with, with you know with different people with different motivations different histories and you can have one society, a country of 5 million people like Denmark, there can be a thriving, massive social movement going on that is just sweeping the entire society from coast to coast, as there was in 2007. And there can be nothing happening that's comparable in any of the other countries in the region because it's a national situation. And that is a very frequent thing. As much as we also, you know, on the left, we love to talk about world historic periods and things, you know, times like the 30s and the 60s when there was rebellion in so many different countries all at the same time. And that's also very important, very, very important to understand these connections. But let's not lose track of how important uh, nations and national borders and national political structures continue to be in the world today. Okay, well, I want to thank you very much for joining us. We've been talking with uh, labor singer, activist, uh, David Rovix. And uh, we hope to have you again, David, uh, about your experiences, struggles, and certainly hear more from your music. So thanks for joining us. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes for this podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produce the show and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this has been Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show.